We proposed to fix the year 1900 for their first celebration, but it was thought advisable to advance that date to 1896, and, at the proposition of Mr. Vicalis, Athens was chosen as the place for their inauguration. Thus was begun an undertaking, which seems to be destined to bring about great results. It has often been criticized since then, yea, even violently attacked by some. Not everyone comprehends it. Many speak of it without learning enough about its origin and its purpose. As for myself, I hereby assert once more my claims for being sole author of the whole project. I take the opportunity to thank most warmly those who join me in hoping that the revival of the Olympic Games will bring athleticism to a high state of perfection, and that they will infuse new elements of ambition in the lives of the rising generation, a love for peace and a respect for life. Baron Pierre de Coubertin, April 1896. It's 393 AD. Emperor Theodosius has issued an edict banning paganism throughout the Roman Empire in an effort to bolster Christianity. The decree means various ancient Roman and Greek traditions are through, including the Olympic Games. The ancient Olympic Games met their end after the 293rd Olympiad and nearly 1,170 years after their inauguration. With centuries of earthquakes and floods bearing the land, the site of Olympia nearly met its permanent end by the early 7th century. For over 1,000 years, the home of Greek temples, laurel wreaths, and fierce competition lay dormant and abandoned. Then, in 1766, through the travels of Richard Chandler, an English antiquarian with a passion for ancient Greece, the site was rediscovered and Olympia began to awaken. Early excavations in 1829 saw little progress, but the game was afoot. German archaeologist Ernst Curtius brokered a deal with the Greek government in 1874, which gave the German Archaeology Institute exclusive rights to the excavation of Olympia. From the fall of 1875 to the spring of 1881, Olympia saw new life, and the new world saw Olympia. Archaeological treasures found their way to museums, and a rekindling of the past found its way into the hearts and minds of those who sought to better the modern world through the inspiration of the ancient one. As a young Frenchman wrote, Nothing in ancient history had given me more food for thought than Olympia. This dream city, consecrated to a task strictly human and material in form, this factory of life forces, loomed with its colonnades and porticos unceasingly before my adolescent mind. And thus we shift our story to that Frenchman, the man credited with reviving the Olympic Games as we know them, the five foot three, thirty year old with the impeccable mustache, Baron Pierre de Coubertin. To be fair, the Baron was not the only one who sought to revive the Games. Englishman Richard Dover sought to create an Olympic style competition in the beginning of the 17th century, with the first Cotswold Olympic Games likely held in 1612. Events included King of the Hill, similar to the modern pentathlon, foot races, tug-of-war, and, perhaps the most notable event, the shin-kicking competition. The Cotswold Olympics ended in 1852, but were revived in the 1960s and continue to this day. If you so desire, you can compete in these games free of charge as long as you register by the night before and you make your way to Chipping Camden, England. For more information, visit olympicgames.co.uk. That's O-L-I-M-P-I-C-K 
games. And in case you were wondering, steel-toed boots are no longer allowed for shin-kicking. Englishman William Penny Brooks created the Winlock Olympian Games in the Shropshire town of Much Winlock in 1850. Brooks believed in the importance of physical education, and he created the Olympian class to better the lives of his townsmen and neighbors through annual athletic and intellectual competitions. From this class came the Winlock Games. Events included foot races, hurdles, tilting at the ring, cricket, football, and even the occasional wheelbarrow race. Like the Cotswold Olympic Games, the Winlock Olympian Games occur annually still to this day. In his travels to the United States and Britain, Baron Pierre de Coubertin witnessed firsthand the athleticism found on university schoolyards and the hardy competition of the Winlock Games. In the official report of the 1896 Olympic Games, when reflecting on the education system of England compared to his home country of France, the Baron wrote, There can be no reasonable doubt about the English affecting a strong and vigorous education of body and character. It is the application according to modern requirements of one of the most characteristic principles of Grecian civilization, to make the muscles be chief factor in the work of moral education. In France, on the contrary, physical inertia, or lack of activity, was considered till recent times an indispensable assistant to the perfecting of intellectual powers. Games were supposed to destroy study. Regarding the development of the character of the youth, the axiom that a close connection exists between the force of will and the strength of the body never entered anybody's mind. Without Dover and Brooks and the athletic culture of Britain, we might not have the modern Olympic Games as we know them. But without the Baron, we might not have the modern Olympic Games at all. His view on the importance of physical activity for improved mental health not only led the Baron to become a catalyst for French education reform and an outspoken proponent of physical wellness for the working class, but it also sparked within him a passion to unite mankind through sport in an effort toward world peace. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Men hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they are separated from each other. I believe the Baron would have agreed with King's sentiments. He saw the revival of the games as a means through which people from all nations would gather, unified, under a common purpose. As a child in France during the 1870 Franco-Prussian War, young Pierre was no stranger to conflict and chaos. By the time he was eight, the Baron had already seen thousands die from the year-long war and Paris fall under a unified German army. Could the French have won the war if their men had grown up ruddy and strong from sports, like the British? After all, as the Duke of Wellington is alleged to have said, the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton. Or perhaps had the Germans and the French been able to meet together on the cricket grounds or the football pitch at the track, there'd have been no war at all. The Baron might have been an idealist and an optimist in this regard, but he firmly believed that sports had a power about them that, if handled properly, could break down all barriers and promote unity better than any political legislation or social theory ever could. In 1896, the Baron wrote, Wars break out because nations misunderstand each other. We shall not have peace until the prejudices that now separate the different races are outlived. To attain this end, What better means is there than to bring the youth of all countries periodically together for amicable trials of muscular strength and agility? 
thus the drive for the revival of the games. The push began in earnest in 1888 with the creation of the Union of French Athletic Sports Societies, or USFSA. The USFSA established sporting societies created and run by the students in French schools. The growing success of the USFSA led to a greater interest in physical education. In response to this interest, the French government tasked the Baron with organizing a conference on physical education which would take place at the 1889 Universal Exhibition, also known as the World's Fair, in Paris. By this time, sports had not been isolated completely within countries. Certain sporting federations, such as fencing, shooting, and cycling, had expanded the pool of athletes and participants to include those outside of the host country, even in federal competitions. But there was not yet an official, international sporting event on the scale which the Baron desired, or with the purpose for which he advocated. In fact, as the Baron traveled throughout Europe and North America, gathering information on physical education for the 1889 conference, he found that the current climate of international sports was nearly ready to implode. Everywhere I found discord, civil war raging between the partisans and adversaries of one particular kind of sport. Those who went in for jumping despised rowing. Fencers were against cyclists. Marksmen looked down on lawn tennis players. Even amongst the followers of the same sport, there existed no more harmony. The admirers of German gymnastics denied all merits to the Swedish method. And American football rules seemed to the English player devoid of all common sense. If we did not wish to see athleticism degenerate and die out a second time, it had to be purified and united. Through the 1889 World's Fair, the Baron gained momentum for his views on education reform and expanded his own knowledge with the trips to England and America which followed. Encouraged by what he saw, Pierre de Coubertin made the bold decision to call for the revival of the Olympic Games at the USFSA 5th Anniversary Conference in 1892. At the end of his speech on physical education in the modern world, the Baron implored the crowd. Let us export rowers, runners, and fencers. There is the free trade of the future. And on the day when it is introduced within the walls of old Europe, the cause of peace will have received a new and mighty stay. This is enough to encourage your servant to dream now about the second part of this program. He hopes that you will help him as you helped him hitherto, and that with you will be able to continue and complete on a basis suited to the conditions of modern life, this grandiose and salutary task, the restoration of the Olympic Games. The crowd applauded, but did nothing more. Was this symbolic speech, perhaps a call for elite championships within each sporting society? No one seemed to know. People didn't understand the implications of what Coubertin said nor did they really care to seek clarification. His first try fell flat, but he was determined. He continued to work over the next couple of years with his mind set on nothing short of Olympic revival. Having done the groundwork with athletic clubs both in France and abroad, and solidifying treaties which united foreign federations in several sports, the Baron was ready for the Peace de Resistance, the convocation of an athletic International Congress to be held in Paris in June of 1894. In the official report of the 1896 Games, the Baron revealed his cunning. The program for the Congress was drawn up in such a way as to disguise its main object, the revival of the Olympic Games. It merely put forward questions on sport in general. 
I carefully refrained from mentioning such an ambitious project, afraid it might raise such a storm of contempt and scorn as to discourage beforehand those favorably disposed towards it. To show, however, that something more important than an ordinary sporting conference was intended to be held, I insisted on our meetings taking place in the halls of the Sorbonne. It seemed to me that under the venerable roof of the Sorbonne, the words Olympic Games would resound more impressively and more persuasively on the audience. The Baron contacted notable and high-ranking men from many European countries, as well as the United States, requesting their attendance from June 16th through the 23rd for a congress allegedly discussing the principles of amateurism. The revival of the Olympic Games was essentially a footnote in the program. By spring of 1894, the likelihood of the planned success seemed to dwindle exponentially as countries sent excuses or no reply at all. But success came at the last moment, according to the Baron. Nearly 80 delegates representing nearly 40 sports organizations, clubs, and federations gathered in the halls of the Sorbonne. The French made up about two-thirds of the delegates and organizations, with the rest coming from Belgium, Greece, Italy, Russia, Spain, Sweden, the UK, and the US. I doubt seriously that the men in the auditorium during those June days had any inclination that they were taking part in what would later be known as the First Olympic Congress, or that the delegates would create the International Olympic Committee, or IOC, by the time the Congress concluded. The characters of history often failed to realize they were making history, yet somehow I think the Baron realized what was happening. He knew that meeting would change the world and the way we saw sports. At least, he hoped it would. And now we get down to the nitty-gritty. The decisions which set the tone for the modern games and created a foundation of tension for decades which followed. First, there was the decision on amateurism. With the exception of fencing, only amateurs could compete in the Olympic Games. The delegates determined that amateur status would go to the athlete who has never participated in open competitions, who has never taken part in a competition in return for money or prize money of whatever origin, in particular if it were entrance fees, who has never challenged professional athletes, and who has never been a sport teacher or a coach for money. This meant betting, endorsements, and cash prizes were out of the question. We'll discuss the implications of this when we cover the politicization of the 1896 games, but be forewarned. The debate and tension over amateurism doesn't ease until 1992. The delegates also decided that the games should take place every four years, though where the games would take place was still up in the air. On the program for the inaugural games, the delegates decided that the pentathlon would be the pinnacle, and that swimming, rowing, sailing, fencing, boxing, wrestling, shooting, athletics, weightlifting, cycling, tennis, equestrian sports, and gymnastics would also appear. In later games, the IOC would decide that athletes could only represent their own nation, preventing nations from scouting talent, and athletes must go through their nation's National Olympic Committee, or NOC, in order to participate. But for this inaugural Olympiad, athletes represented themselves or their athletic club, not necessarily their home nation, nor did NOCs vet every athlete. Still, it was advised that each participating country put on trial competitions for the corresponding sports before the upcoming Olympiad to ensure that only true champions competed at the Games. However, the NOCs were new creations and untested in practice, so the execution of the IOC's wishes was hit or miss. 
proven amateur athletes could participate based on past records without competing specifically to earn a spot at the Games. Others did compete in trial events, as we will learn, but this process was by no means the official and organized one we see today. The debate turned to the location of the Games. The Baron anticipated Paris would host the inaugural Games in 1900. But 1900 was six years away, and momentum might be lost in that time. And London was a crowd favorite, not Paris. After all, the English model inspired Coubertin, and it already had a structure for the sports which the Games would include. And what about Athens, home to the Games of Antiquity? Shouldn't a revival of the Olympic Games take place where they began? The idea was favorable enough to make the choice come down to London and Athens, though Athens seemed rather far from Central Europe. And what about the Americans? Would they travel that far? After strong persuasion from Demetrius Vicalis, the representative for Greece, the matter was decided. The first modern Olympic Games would take place in April 1896, less than two years away, in Athens, Greece. Some in the Greek party were so elated at the glory that would come upon Athens with the revival of the Games that they suggested that the Olympics be held in Athens permanently. The notion contradicted Coubertin's hope for global investment and participation in the Games, as he envisioned a new host country for each iteration. The delegates saw the merit of alternating the location and decided in the Baron's favor, even choosing Paris as the site for the 1900 Games. It was also decided that the president of the IOC should come from the upcoming host country, so on the Baron's request, Vikalis became the first IOC president. Greek professor Timolean Philemon wrote in the 1896 official report of the Games, The decisions were received with the greatest satisfaction by all the Hellenes. Athens had been chosen as the place for the inauguration of the Olympic Games. This proposition gratified the patriotic pride of the whole Hellenic race, and the majority of the Greeks perceived at once that substantial advantages for their country might arise from it. Inspired by the revival coming to Greece, French professor and linguist Michel Brial, a supporter of Coubertin's and later a member of the Committee for the Olympic Games, wrote to the Baron in September of 1894. Between the encouragement and praise for what had already been accomplished with regard to the Games, Brial added a suggestion which would impact the future of sports more than he could have ever dreamed. If you go to Athens, you could try and see if a long-distance run from Marathon to Nix could be organized. That would emphasize the character of antiquity. If we had known the time that the Greek soldier had needed for the distance, we could have set up a record. I personally claim the honor of sponsoring the Marathon Trophy. The idea of a run from Marathon to Nix, a hill in the middle of Athens, brings to mind the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, when the Persians, led by King Darius, invaded Greece in the first attempt to subjugate the Mediterranean city-states. Prior to the battle, Pheidippides, an Athenian runner, traveled 140 miles from Athens to Sparta in a day and a half to request urgent help from the Spartans. Later, once the Athenians claimed victory over the Persians, the Athenians traveled about 25 miles back to Athens and watched as the foreign army sailed away. Over time, these separate events became one legendary account of Pheidippides running 25 miles from Marathon to Athens immediately after the battle and declaring victory for Greece before falling dead from exhaustion. While a legend inspired Brayal to suggest a race from Marathon to Athens, one thing is quite clear. The suggestion worked. The Marathon, which for the modern reader was noticeably absent from the first Olympic Bulletin, 
found its way onto the third edition in 1895. The race evoked such joyous moments in Greek history and such excitement among the Greek people that it quickly overshadowed the pentathlon as the pinnacle of the modern games. In fact, the pentathlon would have to wait until 1912 before making its Olympic debut. But like all host countries that would come after them, a concern quickly arose for the Greek government. Sure, the people of Greece wholeheartedly supported the decision to host the games, but as Philemon noted, The government, afraid that the outlay for those festivities would fall on the public treasury, opposed the project most energetically. The public treasury was, in fact, in a state of bankruptcy. How could any ministry dream of spending 500,000 francs for the celebration of international games, whilst the just and legitimate claims of Greek and foreign creditors had remained unsatisfied? This serious argument seemed irrefutable. The games were intended to help individuals, participating countries, and the world at large. But would it cost the host country everything? It seemed plausible, so much so that some members of the Greek committee tasked with making the Athens Games reality resigned from their positions and told the crown prince, the head of the committee, that the entire affair was a lost cause. In January 1895, at the Committee for the First International Olympic Games, the prince did his best to encourage his fellow committeemen. I have the firm conviction that though our means will not allow us to give to our guests a brilliant outward reception, we shall still be able to impress them favorably with our country. We can show them at least a steady and real progress in all branches of human activity. A progress which is the more remarkable as it has sprung up amidst adverse circumstances and has made its way through difficulties of all sorts. Those who will visit Greece on that occasion will receive a cordial and friendly hospitality, which, joined to the beauty of our sky, will, I trust, compensate them for other shortcomings in our reception. But would Greece be compensated for the games? With the help of public donations and subscriptions, mostly from the Greek people, the committee managed to raise more than double the initial goal. Naturally, as the laundry list of necessary to-dos grew, so did the price tag. The Panathenaic Stadium in Athens needed refurbishing. And by that, I mean the stadium needed to be reconstructed completely on top of the still-buried original. The Greeks prioritized this project with great success and a big check. The velodrome for the cycling races was next on the list, along with a pier for spectating the planned nautical sports, and some minor construction for other events. Amazingly, the Greeks got it done. All the projects and preparations were completed within a year. The games were on, returning to Greece 1,503 years after their lights went out in antiquity. Pierre de Coubertin, the 5'3", 33-year-old Frenchman with the impeccable mustache, did what he set out to do. He took a dream, and he fought for it. He compromised when necessary and put his foot down with conviction. He knew the benefit of his plan. He just needed others to see it. The road to the revival of the Olympic Games is an impressive story of determination and the power of an individual. Perhaps what's more impressive is the legacy of that determination and power. I don't doubt that you'd heard of the Olympic Games before this podcast. But had you heard of the Baron? Did you know the name of the man who fought for the games we know today? He could have spent his energy ensuring that his name would be forever immortalized alongside his project. He could have insisted that they be called Kubertin's Olympic Games. 
he could have ignored the influence of the Winlock Games or the Cotswold Games or his trips to England and America. But he made sure credit was given where it was due, including when it was due him. He worked hard to create something that would outlast him and would be known around the world even if his name was forgotten. That's dedication. To give the world your dream, willing for that gift to surpass you, as long as it can be given in the first place? Imagine the Baron had created the games to depend on him. Imagine he had designed them while so consumed with his own fame and legacy that they would crumble when he left. Say what you want about the Baron and his attitude, but there's tremendous conviction and generosity in an act that says, this gift is so good, I'm going to do whatever I can to give it, even if that means I fade to obscurity as it rises in the spotlight. The Baron sought the game's longevity over personal celebrity, and his fight was worth it. His dream of Olympic revival came true and took off, lasting 125 years and counting. The battle for Athens was won, but it was only the beginning. This episode was written and produced by Olivia Cheney. The intro music is from Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. The sound effects and theme song are from zapsplat.com. Primary source quotes are read by Cameron Cheney. You can find him on Fiverr as Moose Gone Mad. The transcript for this episode of The Games is available at thegamespodcast.wordpress.com. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or any episode of The Games, feel free to reach out via the WordPress site or through Instagram by searching at thegamespodcast. Bonus material is posted to Instagram, so be sure to follow at the podcast while you're there. If you enjoyed this episode, I would so appreciate it if you could share it with your friends or leave a rating or review. It means a lot. Special thanks to Rebecca Brewster-Stevenson for helping edit the script and to Stephen Kratz for providing guidance on the subject matter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.